Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. I've been given the privilege of <clears throat> preaching to you the next uh, uh, this Sunday and the next, and we're going to be going through uh, uh, the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John together, and uh, just really looking at, uh, just really setting our gaze on this encounter that Jesus has with this unnamed Samaritan woman, and that's where we'll be uh, the next two weeks. Today, we're going to be covering uh, verses uh, 1 through 26. But uh, before we go there, um, just wanted to share uh, just a, a frustration that I had early on uh, in my ministry. And uh, I, uh, how many of you guys have, uh, or how many of you guys either have teenagers or you work with teenagers? Yeah, number, okay, yeah. It's definitely a high calling, isn't it, right? I mean, we've got the best of all worlds. I mean, you've got the highs of the highs, you're working with teenager, but then there's also the lows of the lows, right? And um, but it's, it, it is a beautiful thing. And I do, um, I started off my ministry working with teenagers and still have a heart for young people. And, um, but I just remember um, when, I, when, I, when I first got, when, I, when the Lord just awakened my soul and, and transformed my life, it was just, it was, it was just a, it was a huge thing. And, and the, the Holy Spirit came into my life and just radically changed me. And, uh, you know, like I would, I would study the scriptures and I see, man, that, that's, that should be the case in the, in the lives of people. We've got the spirit of God that lives in us that has regenerated us. And, and, you know, the spirit of God has taken that which is dead and has made it alive. Like there should be some life in the life of believers. And, and then I would, I would look at some of my students and I didn't see that and I would get frustrated. And I'm like, you know, just follow Jesus, you know, and, and uh, you, know, you know, give them a hard time. And, and I just had realized uh, my frustration wasn't grounded in a, in, in a godliness to see, them to, you know, to see them know Christ more. It was really just a frustration in my own sin. And, and through that, God just revealed my own idolatries. And it's really um, through reading just a book that was actually more on finances, a book from Randy Alcorn talked about the treasure principle. But Man, that book just ministered the gospel to my heart because I just kept focusing on that verse where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I began to just flip that. I said, okay, so what is, what is at the center of my heart? Because if at the center of my heart it's Jesus, then out of the overflow of that, I mean, that's going to impact all of my life. It's going to change everything I do. It's, there's not going to be an area of my life that Jesus does not um, have lordship over or claim to. Then I began to realize, man, all these students need, they need Jesus. And today, whether you're a believer or not, you need Jesus. The Bible never, ever instructs us or, or gives us any kind of teaching that says, you know what, one day you're going to grow up and be mature and you're not going to need Jesus. Can anyone find a verse in the Bible that says that? No, in fact, the, the, the Bible does tell us that Jesus saves us and redeems us to this new relationship with the Father, but guess how Christians are built up in the faith? If you look at Ephesians, we're built up in Christ. So as believers, we're, we're to be preaching Jesus to each other all the time. Jesus is never, ever to get old for the Christian. I wanted to read to you a quote, and I've read this before, but this, this quote always comes to my mind. 
It's a quote from Donald Miller's book, Blue Like Jazz. Sorry, an excerpt from it, and I'm just going to read it to you. It says, he writes this. A guy I know named Alan went around the country asking ministry leaders questions. He went to successful churches and asked the pastors what they were doing and why what they were doing was working. It sounded very boring, except for one visit he made to a man named Bill Bright, the president of a big ministry. Alan said he was as big as life and listened to his questions without shifting his eyes. Alan asked a few questions. I don't know what they were, but as a final question, he asked Dr. Bright what Jesus meant to him. Alan said Dr. Bright could not answer the question. He said Dr. Bright just started to cry. He sat there in his big chair behind his big desk, and he wept. When Alan told that story, I wondered what it was like to love Jesus like that. I wondered, quite honestly, if that Bill Bright guy was just nuts or if he really knew Jesus in a personal way so well that he would cry at the very mention of his name. I knew that. I knew then that I would like to know Jesus like that with all my heart, not just my head. I really felt like that would be the key to something. So the question that we're going to wrestle with Anytime you read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, I think we can, it's fair of me to ask every one of us in this question, or in this room, this question, what does Jesus mean to you? And, you know, that's only you, only you are going to know that, but what, is, what does Jesus mean to you? And in John 20, 30 to 31, John tells us the purpose of his Gospel. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This whole purpose of the gospel of John is to not really answer the question, who is Jesus? Really, John's John's gospel is really to answer the question, who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah? And as you read the pages of John, I mean, the, the, um, the, the recurrent answer that you should be given is, it's Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And this is what he's like. And it's here that we come to John chapter 4. So whenever you read the Gospel of John, keep that in mind, that this is what John, uh, this is, that's like the overarching uh, uh, context for the Gospel of John. We're going to read John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the will and drank for it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. So it's here in this account, um, in the first few verses of, of John chapter 4, John tells us that the ministry of Jesus is, is growing pretty rapidly. And for whatever reason, we don't, you know, the, theologians have some different explanations. We don't exactly know why Jesus felt like he needed to leave at that time, but we know that he decides to leave Judea and head to Galilee. And if you're looking at a map, you'll literally look at like a, at a, it's, a, it's a stack, right? You have, uh, you have Judea here in the south, Samaria right there in the middle, and Galilee to the north. And John tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Just to give you a little like history primer, when David became king of the Jewish people, he moved the headquarters of the temple in Jerusalem. We know that um, Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed, but then King Herod rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. So it's very significant for, for the Jews that this is, this is where our temple is. And we see here really um, in, in history, the kingdom was divided, the 12 tribes of Israel. We know that 10 tribes went to the north to form the northern kingdom. And two tribes went to the south to form the southern kingdom, and the kingdom was divided. And in the northern kingdom, they established that their center, their capital, would be Samaria. And that's where Mount Gerizim is located. Well, then the, this northern kingdom was sacked in 722 B.C. by the Assyrian army. And we know that one of their tactics, what they did, and they did this to, to the northern kingdom, they deported all the influential Jews, and then they settled that land with foreigners. And these foreigners intermarried with the remaining Jews there. And what happened was there was, um, you know, by these foreigners, there was an acceptance of the beliefs there, but there was also a, a, a mingling of other religious beliefs. So you kind of had a smorgasbord of beliefs there. And although there were some Jews that traveled through Samaria to get to Judea or to Galilee, there were some Jews that refused to travel through Samaria. Instead, they would, from Judea, 
They would cross the Jordan near Jericho, travel up the east bank, which is known as the Transjordan, and they would, they, would, they would largely travel through Gentile areas, and then they would cross back to the west bank near the Lake of Galilee, all to avoid that place called Samaria. But not Jesus. It tells us that he had to go through Samaria. And as we read the story, we know why he had to go through Samaria, right? He had a divine appointment. <laughs> and it's here that we find him in a town called Sychar at uh, Jacob's well. And it was located near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. If you want to read more about that, read Genesis 48:22, where Jacob gave this land to his son Joseph. But this Jacob's well at this point has been there for nearly 2,000 years, right, up to this point where Jesus is still pumping out water. And the miraculous thing about it, it's still there today, and it's still pumping out water. So it's a very sacred place uh, for the Samaritan here. And it's about noon, it's about the sixth hour, which is really, I mean, one of the, I mean it's the, the hottest point of the day. And John tells us that Jesus is wearied. He then sits by the well and waits. He's all by himself, and he's tired, he's hungry, and he's thirsty. And I love that John gives us a win- window into the humanity of Jesus, right? Isn't that encouraging? I mean, John is all throughout his Gospels is telling us about the divinity of Jesus. He is the Son of God. He performs miracles. He has divine foreknowledge. But guess what? Jesus is also wearied. He's also 100% God, but he's also fully man. And then we're introduced to this other character. And this, this other character now that enters the story is an unnamed Samaritan woman. And it's interesting because normally women would get the water and they would do so normally in the early morning or they would do after sunset. And what's interesting is that um, this woman comes alone because, I mean, the social, the social norm of their day, just as it is today, women traveled in packs, right? I mean, look, they, they looked at us, hey, this, is, this could be a good day. We could go out, we get some water together, we could catch up, you could tell me about the family and we'll go do this together. But not so in the case of this woman who was alone. And again, comes at the hottest part of the day. What we see just from this alone, one conclusion we can come to is this woman has been ostracized. And then in verse 7, we see that this conversation begins. The story tells us that Jesus is alone because he had sent his disciples to go get some food. And that was not abnormal. Right, and in this, in this, in this day, in that, in that time, for the rabbi and the student, I mean, you, you, if you had a rabbi, you did what he told you to do, and you wanted to take care of him. So for him to say, "Hey, disciples, can you go get us some food and do that?" It was a completely normal thing. So then Jesus, being as slick as he is, right, he enters this conversation not by saying, "Hey, I'm Jesus." He looks at this woman. He says, "Give me a drink." <laughs> the woman is taken aback, and she responds. You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John tells us in the parenthesis, that's why you have a parenthesis, because he's explaining, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's actually a bad translation. A better translation is, for Jews do not use together with. And the reason why we come to that conclusion is that, of course, Jews and um, Samaritans associated, right? I mean, where did Jesus send his disciples to? He sent them into Samaria, into the city to get food. But this word here really means to, to, to use together with in terms of sharing of utensils and cups, like sharing food together. Because for the Jew, if you were to eat or share utensil or cup with a Samaritan, guess what? You're now unclean. <clears throat> 
A little more on this relationship between Jews and Samaritans. And I'm giving you this history, not just for knowledge, but so that you would understand this, this tension that exists. After the exile, after Babylon um, sacked the southern kingdom and they exiled the believers there, Jews returning to the, to the remains of the southern kingdom, this is how they began to view the Samaritans. They saw them as children of political rebels and they viewed them as racial half-breeds. And they also were very disturbed that these racial half-breeds now had, had tainted this religion and had incorporated other elements of false religion into it. So there was really like a looking down upon from, from the perspective of the Jew. And around 400 BC, the Samaritans built their own rival temple on Mount Gerizim. 200 years later, it was destroyed by the, by, by the Jews, led by a man named John Hyrcanus. This occurred during the intertestamental period where, where, you know, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi and the first book of the New Testament is Matthew. Between, those time, between that time period was a year of 400 years where, where God was silent. This has occurred during that time. And in the building of the temple in Jerusalem, there's a written account that explains that this group of Samaritans threw a dead pig into the, into the temple while it was being built. And this was a big deal because now they had to stop the project and go through all the cleaning rituals and wait seven days. The religious heritage of the Samaritans is based on the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. They don't accept the other books of the Hebrew Bible. And from the Jewish perspective, there was a Jewish code that expressed this sentiment about Samaritan woman. I'm going to read it to you. The daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle and therefore perpetually in a state of ceremonial uncleanliness. All that to say that there was a little animosity between them. So Jesus, speaking to this woman, is breaking the social norms of his day. Don't you love that about Jesus? I mean, this is, this is one of the most intriguing things about Jesus, in my opinion, is how, like, I mean, he doesn't care. Like, you know, like, he's going to talk to everybody. And it wasn't that Jesus was merely trying to be a rebel and disturb the culture of his day. He wasn't tr- just trying to get a cool story or something he could put on his blog or like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to do something radical. No, the Son of God, who is the Messiah, the Christ, loves all people. Is that, isn't that awesome? It's the heart of our Savior, all people. And the loving of people who are unlovable is what caused these different reactions. And do you ever wonder if Jesus were to walk, come here to Anchorage, like where would he walk? Who would he talk to? Who are the, who are the Samaritan women in our city? My answer to that is all who don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus would have been talking to all of them. So in this conversation, Jesus now responds to her and he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So now he's giving her some insight. And if you really, if if your eyes could see who I really was, you would be floored and you'd be amazed. But this woman, not seeing and perceiving yet, says, okay, this guy's weird. Look, normally in this day and age, you would have, like if you're traveling in a pack, you would have like um, um, an animal skin canteen. Jesus, it says he had nothing. He was just waiting at the well. He's like, give me a drink. And she's looking at him, just scratching her head. Like, You've got nothing to draw water with, and this well is over 100 feet deep. Where do you get that living water? And then it's like a little snarky remark here. Are you, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank for it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And don't you love that Jesus doesn't ever get bent out of shape? Right? 
I think Jesus is one, like, he's like a thick-skinned dude, right? He's not, like, easily offended, like, oh, I can't believe she's talking to me this way. I'm appalled. I mean, sometimes Christians, we get so bent out of shape out of, like, you know, like, insignificant things. And, I mean, you know, this, 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 this woman is almost like, you know, like, I mean, just not attacking him, but, like, you know, being smart with him. And he's, he's, he's like, he's cool. Then he says, well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So still at this point, she doesn't really know what she's asking for. In her mind up to this point, she wants, still wants literal water that she thinks will satisfy her. She wants the convenience of not having to come back to this place on a regular basis time and time again because the gift that Jesus was speaking to her was the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit centered on the person of Jesus Christ. But how often, how often do we think the answer to be something else? We have the source of living water, right? Every day we have access to the source of living water, right? I mean, anytime you're thirsty, you have access to the living water, right? But what do we tend to do? Every day, we tend, even as Christians, and I would be the first one here to confess that, we tend to look to other things. And we see that in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. This is God speaking to the prophet Jeremiah to those that were in the southern kingdom. And he says this to the people in the southern kingdom, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of what? So, wow, Jesus is talking about living water, isn't he? And hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is very interesting because the most reliable water source in Israel were its natural springs. The most unreliable source would be these cisterns, which were these pits hewed out. Hewed out means that they were, they, they, were dug, they, these, they were dug into, and then they were covered with plaster, and they would capture rainwater into it. So you can imagine maybe the flavor wouldn't be like, a, like natural spring. There'd be definitely a difference. But what happened is if, 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 if any of these cisterns would break, the water would just leak out right away, and it would be a useless cistern. But this is what Judah did. It turned from God into idols. And guess what? Not much has changed today. Again, we too have the source of living water. And yet how often do we go to broken cisterns expecting to drink and finding nothing or drinking and not being satisfied? Things that weren't ever meant to satisfy our deepest longings. We too, like this woman, have a flawed understanding of what Jesus means when he tells us that he offers water for us to drink and that when we drink it, we will never be thirsty again. We all have longings, don't we? Every human has deep longings. We all long to be loved. Agreed? We all long to be loved. We all long to be known, to be accepted. We long to have companionship. We long to be heard. And what you and I really long for, I believe, at times, is for someone who will see us as we are in all our imperfection, in all our frailties, in all our failures, and still love us in spite of them. Can I tell you just a simple, profound truth that you need to be reminded, and I need to remind myself every day, God the Father, 
God the Son, God the Holy Spirit loves you with an everlasting love. The issue isn't God. The issue is us. We don't believe it at times. Everything that you and I are looking for is found in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So John uses this metaphor of water intentionally. He alludes to many of the Old Testament understandings of living water, as we read in Jeremiah. But for example, we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 to 27. We're going to see there in the Old Testament that water also symbolized cleansing. This is what the Ezekiel writes. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See that cleansing concept of of living water? And the Old Testament also speaks of a day in which living water would flow out of Jerusalem. Zechariah 14.8. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. It's going to be year-round, and it's going to be overflowing. It's going to be in abundance. But John is wanting us to know that Jesus is that living water. Jesus is the bread from heaven. One commentator comments this, in this chapter, in the fourth chapter, the water is a satisfying eternal life mediated by the Spirit that only Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, can provide. So all those longings that you have, every one of them, all right, they're not evil. They're meant to point you to to, to the only one that can satisfy them, and that's Jesus Christ. I know that we believe that, and I know that's like basic Christianity 101, but what I'm finding in my life, I forget that so often in the day. And maybe not my profession, but by the way I live my life, at times there's a contradiction. At times I don't really believe that Jesus is the source of living water. But in order to give us this living water, he must first deal with our sin. And any rebellion against God is sin. And he does so full of grace and truth. Look at John 1.14. And the word, speaking of Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Full of what? Grace and truth. Aren't you floored? I mean, take some time to read the gospel narratives and just take a story of, of, of Jesus' interaction with people I'm always floored at how Jesus deals with people's sin. A lot different than how we tend to deal with people's sin. He doesn't, water, he doesn't ever water down his teaching. I mean, he's always giving people truth, and he's always dealing with people's sin, but it's always encapsulated in radical grace as well. And it's just, it's just him and this woman here. And when you read the gospel narratives, one of the things that you'll see is a man completely full of grace and truth, love on people that are full of themselves and a bunch of other junk. But yet he pursues them and he loves them. (laughs) And he gives them truth, but he gives them grace. It's amazing. So Jesus addresses this woman's sin by cutting right to the heart of the matter. In verse 16, he says, go call your husband and come here. But the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one 
And and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. We see here that Jesus deals with our deepest sin so that we can see our sin for what it is and that we can see the living water for what it is, our only source of life. This woman is broken and unclean. We don't know what exactly happened to her previous husbands, but they either died or they divorced her. And she's currently involved with a man that's not her husband. And rabbinic opinion disapproved of more than three marriages. There is a reason why she's alone at, the, at this well at the hottest part of the day. She's been ostracized. She's hurt. She's broken. She's isolated. She's been hurt by, by people close to her. She's been hurt by multiple men. And then all of a sudden, in this conversation, we think that there's a squirrel moment, you know, like squirrel. Because then she go, you know, they go, they go from talking about her husband, and all of a sudden she's like, our fathers worshipped on the mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And it's not a squirrel moment. It's a very legitimate question. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. See, Samaritans observed the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and they felt that Mount Gerizim was the true temple. Did the Jews agree with them? No. They said Jerusalem, okay? Jerusalem is where the temple is, okay? So whatever you got over there, Samaritans, is, 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 is wrong. And the Samaritans are like, no, we're right. You guys are wrong. And then Jesus, in 22, tells the woman, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, And he's telling her the truth. We can trace that back from Genesis chapter 12, or Genesis chapter 3, really. But at the call of Abram, right, that the call of Abram was, I'm going to bless you, and through you are all nations going to be blessed. In other words, that verse was talking about a promised seed that was going to come from the line of Abraham, that was going to bless all the nations. And who who was that promised seed? Okay, so this is what Jesus is saying. Like, you know, salvation is from the Jews, it's for everyone, but let's, like, we worship what we know because there is, there is a beginning, there is a, there is a history. But the hour is coming, verse 23, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You have to love that he doesn't answer her question, really, right? He, he's not, he doesn't give her the answer she wants. He's not like, it's Jerusalem or it's Samaria, right? He doesn't. What he does by talking about the hour is coming, he's talking about his very life, death, and resurrection. He's saying that when that time comes, okay, location is irrelevant. Rituals and practices you have are irrelevant because what the Father is seeking is those that are going to worship him in spirit and truth. And when you look at John's gospel, worship in spirit, it's really what he's trying to communicate to us is it's, it's from the inside. And it's talking about engaging the whole heart internally, not location or ritual. Now the location and, and, and where it is, is, it's right here. You see, for the biblical writers, the heart, okay, was not the, the literal organ. The heart was the inner seat of man. The heart was where, where your intellect, will, and emotions that exist. So when, this, when the proverb says, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life, that's what it's speaking of. 
So now he's saying people that are going to worship in spirit means the spirit, this living water that has come now, has breathed life into that which was dead. And now this life, this, this heart, the center of, 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 of every person, all right, is going to be really... I mean, just so refreshed by these living waters, right? That there's just going to be nothing but refreshment and just amazement. And when he talks about worshiping in spirit and truth, what John is telling us is that our worship is to be informed by the truth. And who is the truth? Later on in John chapter 14, I am the way, truth. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word. Exactly. So in other words, for for the Christian that worships in spirit and truth, your life has been infused with the Holy Spirit. And now what keeps that that, fan into flame, what keeps that fire on fire is, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That you and I are to constantly come to his word and ask those questions, who is God? What has he done? And we're to keep pondering upon that. And that's, that what is, that's what it means to worship in spirit and truth. You never, ever outgrow your need of Jesus Christ. Never. It never, ever becomes about you or saying, you know what? I in my own strength, can, I can get through this. I can do this. You are never built up in that manner. In fact, if you believe that, that's a false gospel. You are built up by that constant pondering and focusing and just, just meditating on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, coming back to that question, what does Jesus mean to you? And so often, you know, I know we have lots of different ministries. I believe that as Christians, we're to be the most charismatic people because of this concept. And I'm not talking about charismatic as like, hey, uh, we're going to start handing out snakes and everyone's going to start dancing and, and, you know, like doing stuff like that. What I'm talking about is when that living water hits your soul and you who are dead looking, I mean, looking to things that could not satisfy, but then you tasted the grace of Jesus Christ, did you not come alive? Weren't you like, this is amazing. That's what heaven's going to be like. Do you know that? We're going to constantly be like blown away by Jesus Christ. Like every second of the day, we're going to be like, oh my gosh blown away by his majesty and his glory and his splendor. Jonathan Edwards, um, the 18th century American pastor and theologian, said this about worshiping in spirit and truth. I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections or emotions of my hearers as high as possibly I can, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth. Spirit and truth are not opposed to each other. They are to go together. But so often, right, we have people who are merely based their faith on experience, right? And that experience trumps the truth, right? They're like, I know what I've experienced. I know this to be real. And even if the word says it, I, I don't care. I've experienced it. Whereas you have other people that maybe, maybe deny all these other things. And they're like, you know what? Um, you know, in my experience, they don't exist. It never happened to me. So I'm not going to believe it. But we need, to, we, we need to radically change our thinking that, man, Jesus says the Father is looking for people that will worship in spirit and truth. That our hearts should be on fire. We should be the most passionate people in the world. Christians, we should be the most celebratory, passionate people in the world, and we should make sure that whatever is, is fueling that passion is Jesus Christ, the truth. That's what it means to worship in spirit and truth. And every time I read those words, when Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, I get chills. <laughs> This is the first time that Jesus 
acknowledges that he's the Christ in John's gospel. John clearly tells us in chapter 1 that he's the Christ, the Son of God. John the Baptist later on proclaims that he is the Christ. People begin to believe him, but here he is saying to this unnamed woman, she's got no name, yes, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one. He is the person that all of history has been looking to. He's the one who was sent by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit to rescue and renew all of creation. Ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're all naturally worshipers. You guys know that? Like there's two things that, we're naturally, that we naturally do. We're all worshipers and we're all evangelists. We're going to talk more about what, uh, that evangelist side next week. But in other words, like we all worship something. And we all naturally talk about the things that we love, Right? How many of you guys like have a favorite sports team? Just three people. All right. I'm, make that four. <laughs> Liars. It's okay. You can be a Christian and have a sports team, okay? All right. So it's okay. I'm not, we're not here bashing sports, sports teams. But, you know, when you, when you get, you know, when you talk about your team, you know, you, you use like we, like, hey, man, we're, we're having a bad year. Or we're having a great year. And you're just passionate. You're just telling people about your team. You're talking. And, you, and it kind of sets you on fire. We're natural evangelists. We talk about the things that we love. And we're also naturally worshipers because we all have that desire that God has placed in us. But what happens is because of our sin, our affections can be misplaced. And what tends to happen is that we make the gifts of God gods. We make them the greatest things. Paul says in Romans 1.25 that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That yearning to worship, of course, is meant to be fulfilled by God alone. But you and I, as we talked about broken cisterns, that's what we naturally do. And think about it this way. You and I worship whatever we, we, we deem that is most essential for life and happiness. Whatever it is, that thing that you're thinking about that you need that you can't live without, guess what you're doing to it? You're worshiping it. For Adam and Eve, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That fruit, right, was so important to them. That fruit like, like, was so important to them that they were willing to disobey God to get it. They were worshiping it. And you and I do that. For us, it may not be fruit. <laughs> For us, it may be money, popularity, approval of others, a good marriage, healthy family, or achieving some sort of status at work or at school or experience some sensual pleasure. And I've talked about functional gods and functional saviors, right? The functional gods are the things that are in our lives that, that demand our worship. We're like, man, this is so important to me. And it's literally like we're bowing down to it. And functional saviors are those things that we use to set us apart from others. Like whatever we look to to establish our worthiness is what's called a functional savior. Just as Adam and Eve, like once they realized they were naked, what they do? They covered themselves. And those are our functional saviors. Whatever can set me apart or, or make me feel like, you know, I'm valuable, that's a functional savior. So two questions that I'm, I'm always asking myself is this. Number one, what am I deeming most essential for my personal life and happiness? And take some time to answer that honest. What are you most, what, like, deeming most essential for your own life and happiness? And then take that before Christ. The second thing, what are the things I'm looking to for my worthiness or to establish my worthiness? 
And I know this is just part of American culture, but one of the first things we do when we introduce ourselves, hi, I'm Chris, and you're so-and-so. What do we tend to ask? What are some questions? What do you do? What do you do? That's become so part ingrained of, of American culture. It's like, hey, what do you do? And for some of us, what we do and how we answer that, that's what it's all about. Like, I am a successful businessman. And we want to we feed that image. And, and, and where we get value is, is, is in that facade of being a successful businessman. Or whatever it is. Whatever we look to. And if you would take some time, we don't have time to go there, but if you look at John chapter 3, there's a reason why John chapter 3 talks about Nicodemus, and the reason, there's a reason why John chapter 4 talks about this unnamed Samaritan woman. The writers of the gospel are, are really clever, and there's a lot of compare and, and contrast there. For example, he was a learned, Nicodemus was a learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained man. But this woman was unschooled, without influence, despised, capable of only folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, and a moral outcast, right? So two radically different people. He came to her at night, or he, he came to Jesus in the evening because he, was in, he, he didn't want any of the other Pharisees to see him, right? He wanted to do the cool, you know, the cool of the night. And he went to Jesus, whereas in this case, Jesus came to this woman in the hottest part of the day. And we see like these two radically different characters. But you know what they have in common? What do they have in common? They both need Jesus. Whether you come from a background of religion and of, you know, whatever paradigm you've grown up in, all right, you need Jesus just as much as this lowly Samaritan woman. And Jesus is the Savior of all. That's why he told Nicodemus, you've got to be, you've got to be born again. You got to be born of water and spirit. And he wasn't talking about water baptism. He was talking about that Old Testament concept of cleansing. You too need to be cleansed, Nicodemus. And Samaritan woman, you too need to be cleansed. You need to be given living water because you have lots of shame. And Nicodemus, you have lots of pride. But both of you equally need Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, you know what? I love the both of you. We don't know what happened to Nicodemus, right? We don't know if he, if he received Christ, but we do know this woman did, this social outcast. But coming back to this hunger of God, I wanted to read to you a quote by John Piper. He says this, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife, Luke 14, 18 through 20. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of the earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Again, we're all worshipers. Brothers and sisters, when we come to Christ, okay, maybe some of you have not come to Christ Maybe some of you who have already come to Christ, all right? One of the process that is going to keep ongoing is that we have to die. And we don't have to die for an endless death. We die so that Christ would live in us. 
and think about your life, especially if you're a Christ follower. Who do you want to, to be at the, heart of your, uh, at the throne of your heart? Who do you want to dominate that? Your old self or Jesus? But in order for that to happen, there is a battle. And guess what? Someone's got to die. And the old self has got to die. That's why Paul can proudly boast, I've been crucified with Jesus Christ. And I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You never outgrow your need for Jesus. You never outgrow your need to preach the gospel to yourself and to always like, have a laser focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Never, ever. And the second that you begin to think differently, you have to ask yourself, what am I satisfying my hunger with because I am naturally a worshiper? All of us have looked to broken cisterns, and not everyone has a testimony of drug, sex, and rock and roll. You know, people would talk about that. Hey, my testimony is boring, or, you know, or my testimony is this. We feel like we have to have these elevated uh, levels of testimony, but it's not true. One of the things that you and I are going to all have in common is that at some point when we met Christ, we came to the end of ourselves. No matter you've come from a Nicodemus background, no matter if you come from a Samaritan woman background, at some point when you met Jesus, you came to the end of yourself. And the image I have here is, you know what? All of us have looked to broken cisterns. And at some point in our lives, we were on our knees surrounded by broken vats of clay with nothing, with nowhere else to look but up. And Jesus freely extended his hand and offered us new life. And sometimes, you know what? We do have shame. But Jesus is so amazing that he removes our shame at the cross. And it's all, this lifetime is all about Jesus in us. As Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Amen? And do you notice these themes? Do you notice that Jesus loves to go into an unclean place and make it clean? He's not OCD, all right? He's not like this cleaning fanatic. I'm just talking about like he, he gets into the mess of things and makes them unclean. He meets this, I mean, the, I mean, you know, like you look at these stories of like the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years or this, this Samaritan woman. I don't know, maybe for some of us men, we're like, what, we have nothing in common with, with these people. And that, that is a lie. These stories were written for our instruction. And when you hear these stories, you're like, man, I could totally be like that. I could totally be like this, like this woman in that I look to other things other than God. Has anyone else ever looked to something else other than God? Guess what? You have some in common with, uh, with this woman, whether you're a man or a woman. Don't you love that uh, Jesus makes unclean things clean? And one of the ways that Jesus teaches me is um, literally through cleaning. How many of you guys enjoy to clean? There's, okay, there's some, some weird people out there, all right? Just kidding. I know we're all wired differently. I don't enjoy to clean, but oftentimes the gospel ministers to me when I'm in the process of cleaning, right? And to give you a, a quick story, one of them was, uh, was this pet turtle we had. I don't know if, if you guys have ever had an aquatic turtle. Um, they're pleasant creatures. They can be pleasant creatures. Um, unfortunately, the one I had was not a pleasant creature. The one I had was the meanest, just grumpiest aquatic turtle ever in the history of, of this world, okay? So much so that every time I would pick him up, he would open his mouth and he would like just release this hissing sound like this. 
And then his, 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 like, you know, his, his arms and legs would come out, like, like, you know, like he was just being tortured. I mean, his, his, his nails were coming out, and he was just so angry. And it would frustrate me, you know. I'm like, I feed you every day. You know, I clean your tank when it gets dirty, and you treat me like that. And one of these days, I grabbed him, and he, like, quickly nipped at me. And I had these, you know, those nitrile gloves, because like, the tank was just nasty, all right? It'd been, we had been really busy in it. And if you know anything about aquatic turtles, they just make a mess of everything, okay? Um, and, like, we had these uh, cleaner fish in the tank. And, in, and the, guy was, the guy at the, you know, fish store was like, yeah, they don't normally eat these. They're fine, you know? He ate all of them, and, like, <laughs> he destroyed them all. And this tank began to develop this green, just green scent. And I grabbed him out, and he instantly bites me, and he, and, he, and he bites me through my glove and breaks skin. I grabbed that turtle, and I wanted to throw him against my door. And I was just like, okay. And I said, that's not the right thing to do. So I put him in his little holding tank, and I said, we'll pray for you later. <laughs> and uh, just so angry with him, though. I really wanted to destroy him. And then I begin going about cleaning this tank, and you're transferring water, and it just smells terrible, and I'm finding heads of these cleaner fish in, in, inside my tank. So it's just, it's, just, it's, just, it's just a nightmare, right? And as I'm cleaning, and I've got all this gunk in my hands, and like, the Father begins speaking to me. And I have a bad attitude. It's just a sour attitude. And the Father was like, Chris, you too were unclean, but I made you clean. You two were a mess. You two were ungrateful. You two, just like this turtle, would snap every time I put my hand out, but yet I didn't stop loving you. And then honestly, in that bathroom, I was all alone in the house. I just got to my knees, and I just began to ponder upon Jesus, and I began to weep, and I repented. I said, Lord, I said, Lord, Forgive me for always forgetting the grace that I have in you. Forgive me for always forgetting the great love that you poured out in my life. Because if I really believed that, Jesus, I mean, these trivial things wouldn't be phasing me. I would be living a life more of freedom, and of, I would be really living a life more of, of worshiping in spirit and truth and not being so taken down by the trivial and mundane. And then after I cleaned the tank, um, I just remember, like, like it, was, it was so clean. Like, it was awesome. I mean, you know, like, his name was Junior, and, you know, put him in, and he was so happy. He's like, you know, this is clean, no more green gunk. I can actually see where I'm swimming. And I just looked, and he just began to sit on his floating rock with the, you know, with the heat lamp on it. And was just so at peace. And I just began, like, I'm like, Lord, thank you. You take everything in my life that's messy and you restore it and you make it new. And not only do you do it once, Jesus, you do it time and time and time again. Every time I make a mess of this life and of this tank, every time I, every time I don't live my life as I should, you come and you remind me of your truth and you love me and you minister to me. Someone tell me the gospel is good news. We need the gospel because the gospel in reality, deals with our sin. And it doesn't, you know, it's not like Jesus, like, like this turtle tank, it's not like Jesus is like, oh, we're just not going to deal with that. We'll just remove you. He deals with the sin. That's why Jesus had to die. Someone had to die for our rebellion. Jesus, literally, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He got dirty. And he got dirty so that he would redeem a people and graft them into the family of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And he did that so that you would go out and tell others how awesome Jesus is. Amen? So, my brothers and sisters, I pray you would believe the gospel changes us. It frees us. It no longer, it's no longer performance-based because we're established in our identity and who God is and what he's done for us. And the assurance of God's approval and presence takes away our nakedness and our craving for approval. And he becomes all in all because he's like, no longer do you need to look to another person because you're going to now look to the perfect person, which is Jesus the Christ. No longer do you need to look there for acceptance and approval because you've got it perfectly here. No longer are you going to turn to these things for satisfaction and enjoyment because you have all satisfaction and enjoyment here. You don't have to look there anymore. And that's good news, my brothers and sisters. So we're going to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper together. And uh, what I wanted us to do is, before we, um, before we take it, let us just be reminded here that the Lord's Supper, that Jesus night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what I wanted us to picture is this. When we think of the Lord's Supper, we, ha- we think of a table. And we think of who's at that table. And since, is the, this, since this is the Lord's Supper, who's at the head of this table? Jesus, right? Let me ask you a question. Who does Jesus welcome at his table? The religious, only the religious elite? Only those who have done well and paid enough or, and prayed enough prayers? No. He welcomes all people that have received him as, as their Lord and Savior. And he says, this table is open to you. And I want you to picture as you're taking this, uh, as you're taking the bread and the juice, this is the body, the body that was, that, that was, that was beaten for you. And when you take the juice, think about the blood of Christ, that because his blood was shed, there was the possibility of, of our sins being forgiven. It was poured out for you and poured out for me. And because of that, Jesus is like, come, come to this table and let's eat together. So the Lord's Supper is supposed to not just be the somber time. It's to be a time of, of, of celebrating. And, and when we take the Lord's Supper, we're to worship in spirit and truth. We're to like, man, Jesus, thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. Because there have been so many times in my life where I just felt like being distant from that table because I had to be perfect or I had to do something. And in the word picture that I have in mind, Jesus is saying, no, Chris, there's always a spot for you. Just come back. Don't, why are you looking to those things? This is where life is. Just come back and, and do this in remembrance of me. Remember the body and remember, the, remember this. So much so that Paul tells us, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So brothers and sisters, let's do that together, remembering who Jesus is and what he's done. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we... Um, we just thank you. God, I, I pray that none of us would ever think that we ever outgrow our need for Jesus. Jesus, you're the Messiah. 
Jesus, you are the son of God. There's only one way to the father. There's no other God that we can look to. We can only be made right with the father through Jesus Christ. And forgive us for looking to other things. Forgive us for looking to uh, broken cisterns, God. Forgive us for ever thinking that we could find the source of living water in something else other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we just come to you. We acknowledge our frailty. We acknowledge our brokenness. We acknowledge and we confess, Lord, that we are, we are not perfect. But, Lord, we're also going to cling to the promise that you, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We're going to also believe that in our brokenness, Jesus, that when you receive us and you graft us in into your perfect family of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we're given a new identity. We're given, uh, before Christ, we, we, we attempted to, to, to live by a works-based righteousness, but that's nothing but filthy rags. But now because of belief in what Jesus Christ has done, we're now been given Jesus' perfect righteousness so that when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see an illegitimate, just, just orphan. He sees a son of God. So Lord, we're gonna believe that. We're gonna, we're gonna stop believing that, that um that we need to perform to earn your love. We're going to stop believing that. And we're going to start believing that you love us perfectly because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. And Lord, we're going to stop pretending to be people we're not so that we can win the approval of others. Instead, we're going to start living in the identity that we're sons of God and we already have the perfect approval of our Father in heaven. Father, we thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the bread and we thank you for the juice that represents your body and your blood. And Lord, we take it with grateful hearts and we take it proclaiming your death until you come back. We're gonna always remember, Lord, that it's always about who you are and what you've done and we're to keep pondering on those things. I pray right now that there are people that are being ministered to by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm praying right now for people that have struggled with shame. I'm praying right now, Lord, that you would deal with that because a child of God need not experience shame because, Jesus, you bore our shame. I pray for those that are more indifferent and prideful. Lord, you love them as well, just as you love Nicodemus. And I'm praying that you would bring them to the point of just, uh, just spiritual need where they would see that they need you. Lord, you are Savior for all people, for all times, and we thank you, Lord. We love you, and to you be the glory forever and ever. It's in your son's beautiful and wonderful name we pray. Amen.